Welcome to the Talk and Chatter Experience powered by Gasoline Alley Harley-Davidson and Pearly Motorcycle Tyres. My guest today is Superbike Rider Lachlan Eppis. We sat down to chat with Lachlan on the Monday night after the last round at Morgan Park. It was great to get a real insight into what Lachlan currently thinks about racing in Australia, content around motorsport, and all other things that he's witnessed around motorsport travelling the world. I hope you enjoy the show. If you get the chance, hit subscribe on our YouTube channel, give us a rating and a review on iTunes, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Hey, Lachlan Eppis, welcome, mate. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, we've just come back from ASBK weekend, obviously round five. And um, yeah, explain your weekend. Oh, it's like most of our weekends, some good, some bad. Um, but no, I had a good weekend. I've been enjoying myself. We had a bullshit penalty that isn't worth mentioning. It's just typical shit we've been dealing with this year. But I was fast. I had good pace. Um, had some controversy on the first lap um, in both the start and into turn 10 with Wayne. So no, it was good. I was, I was comfortable. I was fast. And we're going in the right direction. Absolutely, mate. And that start, um, we spoke about it obviously on Sunday afternoon and that. But it was a gun start no matter what. Um, must have felt pretty good to get off the line so quick. It was nice to lead. I didn't think I'd done it legitimately, but I've been told that it was very close, so I might have, but I still feel like I definitely jumped. If anything, I moved and the light might have gone off at the same time, but I definitely didn't react to the light. But it was nice. I led my first ASPK race regardless, um, and that was good, I, and that was the first time I've been up there. You know, I showed promise in pre-season, and then I haven't delivered, so it was nice to actually be at the front, and that was that was really rewarding. Yeah, that... it. it must feel good obviously there's so much work that goes into this it's not something that you just all of a sudden fall on and uh yeah it must have felt good to be leading obviously up until uh turn 10 <laughs> um but uh i feel especially with the lap times that were coming from that there was obviously pretty good pace for you to come as well yeah well i i was off the track and i was i was you know seven eight seconds behind and i was 13th i had a lot of passes to make and come through and when i was in clear i was running podium pace um which was you know, that's, that's all we need to do. If we can do that and be in a podium place, then we're on the podium. So it's it's there, the pace was there, and so we just need to put it all together. Awesome, mate. Well, who is Lachlan Eppis? Oh, have you got a book? Um, oh, I'm 22. Um, I'm a licensed real estate agent by day, um, so that's what I do. I spend nine hours a day, five days a week in the office, making calls, being that person that you, you want to hang up on as soon as we call you. Um, outside of that, uh, I love racing motorbikes. That's pretty much what I pride myself in. That's what I do. Um, I've started taking my training a lot more seriously and, and really making that my number one priority in racing. Um, and then outside of that, I'm just a goofball. I, I, I make YouTube videos and spend a lot of time on social media. And, and that's a passion is seeing how I can grow that platform and, and leave a mark uh, as far as virtual content and stuff. Is that something, like, obviously, you're, you're born in uh, 99, turn of, obviously, the latest century. Uh, is that something that, well, looking at it, that's something that you're sort of really putting through to the sport yourself. I don't see it sort of coming through in Australia too much anyway. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. I, I grew up at the dawn of the internet. Like, I grew up with, you know, YouTube personalities and then Instagram personalities, TikTok, Vine. Just grew up with, so you grew up wanting to do that, and I saw... You know, when I started making YouTube videos, there wasn't really a motorsport as far as bikes, and it still isn't in Australia. There is now in BSB, a lot of the guys are vlogging and stuff, and, and Johnny Ray is doing it now, and there is a space where motorcyclists are, are YouTubing and vlogging and leaving more information out there for people. But when I started, there wasn't, and I wanted to try and fill that void. In some ways I did, in some ways I didn't. Like, you know, I've, I've had videos now that have done really successful, um, now I just, I just do it for fun and for me and to 
have something that I can watch back later when I'm older. Usually, and, and this is probably talking a bit uh, out of my heart here a bit, but usually races are, are very literal people. It's a math, everything's mathematic. It's, uh, we, we get to this turn, we need to get tense in that. Creative, creativity is a total different thing. Where's that come from for you? It's an, it's an emotional thing, you know. It's, um, when you're creating, it's, you're, not, you're not, okay, if I say these words, I do this, I do that, this will happen. It's just a, it's a luck of the draw, and it's just about portraying your personality and having that outlet, you know. Um, and for me, it's an outlet. It's an ability where I can just be myself. I'm not having to give the right answers to a media personnel or I don't have to be this uptight person at school or whatever it was at the time. I can just be me and I can say me and if I say something I'm not supposed to say, I can edit it out, um, but I can just, I can be myself and it, it's really freeing and enjoying for me and that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah. Do you, do you think sometimes, and obviously watching the videos and I watch the videos, my job is video and um, I respect the videos you do and I like, I think the sport has to have more of that sort of thing of people's character come through. Uh, do you feel sometimes you might get a bit misunderstood? Um, yeah, look, it's one of those things. If you're, if you weren't, if you like, I, I was born in the internet. Like, I live on the internet. I spend all my time. So, there's a certain internet culture that I've grown up with, and there's certain things that I'll say on a, in a YouTube video and a YouTube vlog that I will find very funny because I understand the, I understand what it means. But if you're coming and you're just watching it because Lachlan Epps is a racer and I respect him as a racer and I want to watch what he says, some of the things I say are going to come off as really off-putting or cringy because you just you haven't come from the culture that I've come from. So, yes, it is. Um, and sometimes you can be misunderstood in what you're saying because I'm coming from a different, I'm coming from a YouTube, so when I'm saying something instead of coming from a motorcycle race and sometimes I don't explain myself correctly. So I've had people, you know, when I first started, it was like, oh my God, this is cringe, this is awful. Why are you doing this? Stop. Um, and now it's like, oh, you're still doing videos. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And so it's just as you do things, you build that up, that acceptance, and people start to appreciate what you're doing. And I think, I think it's it's good fun. So I enjoy doing it. It's good fun, and it brings a different set of eyeballs. That's yeah. the other part. So, and and if you look globally, and we mentioned it beforehand, but the Paul brothers and that, no doubt, when they first started doing their YouTube videos and everything, people would have been probably saying the same thing. Like, what, what what's the benefit of this? Why are you doing this? Now you look at it, and they're mega stars. And basically headlining the sport and giving a, the, uh, their sport that they're getting into, boxing, a direction. Yeah, well, it's like that. I, I, I know I have a small following on YouTube, nothing like, you know, some of the extraordinary stars of, like, the Pauls, KSI, whatever. But it's the same thing. You know, they built up this fan base and then went and did boxing. And they brought a bunch of, a bunch of new fans to the sport of boxing. And I was one of those people that came and I started watching, the, watching KSI and then I watched him fight and then I got interested in fighting myself. And now I've got my own charity boxing fight coming up at, uh, next month. And on a much smaller scale, I've, I've had some people that enjoy watching my YouTube video, YouTube videos that are outside of racing that are just me being me. And then they, they see that I'm doing racing, they start getting into, interested in racing. So much smaller scale, but you know, if I can bring three people that are interested in racing that weren't before, then I, I think it's been a success. Absolutely. Tell me about the fighting. Why, why, you, why, why would you do that? <laughs> um, part of it is a, is a training motivation mechanism. Um, if you don't train to fight, you're gonna get your head caved in. Um, and so that's a very literal motivation of, okay, I need to make sure I'm running every day. I need to make sure that I'm in the gym, training, working, sparring, having sure I have that cardiovascular strength. And that's always going to translate over the bike racing. Besides that, I, I just, it's something I've been wanting to do and looking at doing since I was probably 18. Um, I'm now 22, so I've been waiting to do it for four years. 
couple of times I've tried to do it by going to just an actual boxing gym and, and doing the amateur boxing fighting way, but they, they expect you to be there every day for five, six months, and with racing commitments, you just, you can't be there 24 seven. I've already got a sport I'm committed to, I can't commit to two. Um, so the opportunity to come and do a 10 week, almost like training program, like a gym program, uh, but centered around a boxing fight. And at the end of your 10 week program, they pair you up with someone else in the program, um, and you all go and you fight at this charity boxing fight in Luna Park. So that was where it came from, partly training, partly already wanting to do it, and it just kind of lined up perfectly. How far into the camp are you? Uh, so I'm on week five now. Um, I'm actually supposed to be sparring tonight, but I'm obviously still a thousand kilometers away from home. Um, so we're halfway through. I've picked up some of, the, some of the concepts that you need to pick up, but you realize very quickly where your body is weak. Like I, I feel like I'm quite a fit person compared to the general populace, but you realize that in boxing, how fit you have to be in, in a different way. Like I'm cycling and doing a lot of weight work for bike racing and you go and box and you realize how strong your legs need to be and how long you, your calves have to be. So I'm, I'm fatiguing because I'm not used to being on my feet in this way. And so it's interesting that even though you can be fit, you go do a different sport which requires different muscles and you're still completely out of depth. It's crazy. Absolutely. It's crazy. As a, as a professional athlete, which you are, to hear someone say that th there is, you know, weakness within the body, it's pretty huge. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I'm bike fit. I'm fit enough to ride a motorbike. Yeah. Um, but I'm not yet fit enough to, to go do a 12-round boxing fight. Like, the fight I'm doing is, is three three-minute rounds. And I'm going to, at, at the moment, I finished my, th my third round and I'm like, okay, I need a break. And yet I can race for twice as long as that at the same, what it feels like the same intensity. Yep. Um, and yet I'm sure if I went and did rowing, it'd be the same. I'd be like, I'm um, cooked after five minutes. So it's funny how when you get to the upper echelons of what your body needs to do, it needs to be tuned exactly for that or it's just not, it's just going to fail. Mm. Do, you, do, you, do you wear a heart rate monitor on racing, training, anything? Um, I wear a heart rate monitor when I'm, when I'm on a training bike. Um, how does it compare to boxing? It doesn't. Like, really? Uh, yeah, when I'm like if I'm at Picton, which is our, our local go-kart track, uh, riding 400s and we do maybe 30, 40 lap runs, um, you're sitting around 140, 150 beats a minute. Not you, so your, your heart rate's beating too fast to be able to talk, but it's low enough that you're able to think and everything still feels at a reasonable speed. I'm in boxing, at the end of the rounds, I'm over 200 beats a minute wow. because it's instantaneous. You're watching and if, if, you get, if you're not reacting perfectly, you're getting hit in the face. So the stress of instantaneous consequences, just the adrenaline spikes like crazy. Do you think like you're, you're so, you know, you've done dirt track as a kid, you, everything's second nature at this point, you know, 22 years old. Do you think the heart rate would start to come down if you'd done it longer? As far as boxing, you mean? Yeah. Because you get that yeah. awareness. Yeah, you, know? you get that awareness, you get comfortable in it. Like for me, I, I thought I'd be comfortable getting punched in the face. I'm not. Yeah. I, I thought I'd be like, yeah, you know, I, I've been punched in the face. I went to boarding school. We used to have scraps every other week. It, it'd be fine. But when you're standing there and you know you're there for, for three minutes, it, it, you're still like, okay, I, don't really, I really don't want to get punched in the face. Yep. So I'm sure if you did that long enough, you'd be comfortable. You're like, okay, he's going to hit me. I'm going to hit him and, and I'm going to be fine. The stress will come down and you start picking up on other things. But then I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to cover my face. Don't let me hit me. And the adrenaline is just going berserk you almost your arms almost you know what you're supposed to do but your body just doesn't do it and you you have this horrible you can shadow box and look great and you spar and you just look like wet spaghetti wow what my my best friend and he you know really fit guy six foot four would be in the heavyweight division absolutely jacked fireman 
did one one bout, sort of sort of like what you're doing, and like he always dreamed of doing it as well. And uh, he won it, but he yeah. said, no, I'll never, ever do it again. It was yeah. just that experience of I went through the camp, did everything, um, got it out of the way, but never again. Yeah. I, I think I, I definitely won't be doing this style of camp again where it's mm-hmm. like for me, I, I live Western Sydney, Western suburbs, and the training's in the city. So it's, it's an hour and a half each way of training for me, and that, that, that's taking a toll just to get there. So I don't think I'd ever do this again. Um, I'm curious to see what fight night feels like. You know, if it feels rewarding, Maybe I'll do it again. If I'm like, okay, I've done it, but I don't want to do it again, then that'll be it yep. for me. Um, but I am passionate. Like, I like watching it. I love um, the pay-per-views and everything like that, but I don't know if it will be my sport. Depends on whether I get comfortable, I guess, getting punched in the face. Absolutely. So where did motorcycling come into it for you? Um, I don't know. There's a, there's a long story and there's a short story, I guess. Um, the old man used to race historic bikes um, in the 90s, uh, and I came along in 99, and, and that kind of all stopped because... I became more expensive than bikes. He had to go back to work. So um, I guess the itch was always there for him. And he retired in 07 and went back and decided to go buy a K5 and, and race superbikes at the, um, in the FX series for Terry yep. O'Neill. Um, so 07, 08, he got really, really fit. Like, and bike was his life. You know, yep. He'd come home and all you'd hear about was motorbikes and motorbikes this, motorbikes that. Um, but I was, never, I was never asked if I wanted a bike. We never told a bike. Um, he always had in his head that I had to ask myself. So end of 08, or might have been the end of 07, I started begging. I'm like, please, please, I want a bike, I want a bike, I want a bike, I want a bike. Um, probably six months of asking. I finally get my uh, Suzuki DR70. Yep. Um, but we had, we had nowhere to ride it. So we'd drive an hour in the van um, off to this little like, uh, entertainment park called Pacific, Pacific Park, um, and he would limit my throttle to about 25 percent throttle so probably wasn't going more than 10k an hour and I'd ride around this little paddock and I remember I remember the first time I rode because I, I still don't know why I did this mm-hmm. but I was riding and I'm full throttle which is nothing and I'm screaming my helmet going wee wee this is so much fun um and from there it just it just steamrolled um we did a Yamaha camp uh where I sucked on a motocross bike motocross I cannot do it Mm. I have no ability to go through a rut. I have no ability to gauge a double. I just can't do it. Um, So we did four days of that and we're like, okay, maybe he just isn't a motorcycle rider. The fifth day they set up these two cones for us. um, And it was like the cat and mouse game. And me and my little DR70 and there was the Australian champion on his KX50. And it took him maybe 100 laps to almost catch me. Yep. And then another 100 laps for me to catch him. And so they, they brought Greg over and said, look, he can ride. He just can't ride anything that's rough. Yep. And so um, from there, you know, we went home, instantly bought a KX65. KX yeah, KX65, um, KDM, and started riding at Nepean mm-hmm. uh, Raceway. So I became a flat track specialist, but only at one track. Yeah. Um, I never won an Australian title. I couldn't ride sand. Um, and when I was coming up, we always raced, the titles always at Summersby, which was really loamy. Yep. I just didn't have the ability to, to overcome it. Um, so I used to race the Pan Raceway, and that was the only track I was good at. I could beat all the, t- the kids at the Trailing Champions at that track. Um, and I was good at Tari, the oil track, yep. but everything else I sucked at. So I turned 12, I was finally old enough to ride road bike, and we got a Moawaki 80. I, I put my mum's pink leathers on. Um, and started riding around uh, at the California Superbike School Days. Yeah, yeah. And it was just obvious that I was never going to be a motocrosser, so let's go road racing. Um, 
and started doing that and just and fell in love. And did it, when you got on the road bike, did it just click? No, no, it didn't. It, I, I've never been someone that was instantly fast. Yeah. I've always been someone that's the 10,000 hours, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice and you'll be good at something. That, that was me. So we did hours and hours and hours of, of track days and time. Um, and I went on to 150, it was my first year of, of road racing uh, in MRRDA and I was 13 years old. And every race weekend I'd get one position better. So the first race weekend I was seventh, which I think was last or very close to last. Um, and I went sixth, fifth, fourth, third, second. And finally at the fifth round, Morgan Park, funny enough, um, I was finally fighting at the front. Yep. But it just was a slow progression for me in everything that I did. I'm sure if I did enough of, of something, I'd, I'd be fast, which I'm sure, you know, is a more expensive way than just instantly being at the front. But that was, that was me. I couldn't just arrive and, and be there. It took me time to build up to stuff. I think that's, like you said about the 10,000 hours sort of analogy there is uh, once you get to that point, though, you become like a hardened piece of steel pretty much. Like you can attack multiple different tracks because you've done so much sort of hours getting to this point, I guess, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. We always used to joke that I would win the race on Monday um, mm. because I never stopped getting faster. I do my, I do a lap that felt like I was absolutely on the limit in qualifying. Yep. Wake up Sunday from warm up and go half a second faster. Wow. Um, so that was like, I would always build and it was the same for the majority up until the last few years where I think I finally hit my my theoretical 10,000 hours where I can now just bang and I know the limit and I, I know how hard and I can do my best lap when it's asked of me. Um, but for a long time, even when I was racing World Championship, it was the same. I'd be, I was just building and I could never just pull it out of nowhere. I'd always have to just keep building and building and building. And that's very hard in the world world scene, especially when you're going to learn places and everything. Yeah, well, it was one of those things. We, we, we were in the World Championship way too early for ourselves. Right. Um, you know, we... I'd won everything in Australia that I could win, yep. and I wasn't going to be able to ride a 600 for another two years. So there was no point staying in Australia. So you were 14. I was, I was, yeah, I was. I'd 14, um, and I had, I was, yeah, 2014. I was 14 years old, um, and we said, okay, well, we have to go to Europe. Yeah. I'd already been to New Zealand and won there, so I was like, can't even go across the pond. I have to go to Europe. So we went there in 2014, in the second half of the year, um, and did four rounds of. A, championship called European Junior Championship, mm -hmm. which is like on 500cc Hondas. Um, and I finished, I think the best result I had was 13th. Um, I'd crashed out a second at Ragni Corps. Um, but it was actually, we had a conversation with Ron Haslam. Uh, yeah. So I'd gone to Donington Park to do some training with him and he basically sit us down and said, what's the point? Why are you gonna ride a 500, this big heavy thing where you need to learn these horrible habits in order to win? Um, you know, you're young and you, you'll adapt, just go ride a 600. Yep. And so he said, okay. So he joined a championship called uh, the Stock 600, which was the championship underneath World Supersport. Still ran in the World Superbike paddock, um, but it was just U European rounds. Yep. Um, and that was the same championship that Top Rack, Rasgade Oakley won that year. I was in the same championship. So I, I raced that and I was, I was hopeless. I, ne I didn't score a point. Um, I could, I, like every round you could, you could clearly see the progression. I was getting closer and closer and closer but I'd started so far back that mm -hmm. by the end of the year, we're like, okay, next year we're gonna start scoring points again at the top 10. Yep. Um, and of course, Dorna just went, no, you don't, because we're gonna get rid of the championship. Mm. So they, they go rid of the championship and we're like, oh, we wanted to be here for three years and so now one year. Yep. But Dorna were looking for an Australian rider to go to World Supersport. So they said, bring your team, 
we'll, we'll make it more, a little bit more affordable than it would be. It was still very expensive, I'm sure, but they helped yeah. a little bit and said, come and race World Supersport. So I was 16. I was the youngest ever rider to be, do a full championship year mm-hmm. of World Championship. And at this point, we're, we're five years too early to the championship on our plan that me and dad had set out and put when I was yep. 14. We said, we'll do three years EJC, win that. Three years Stock 600, win that. And then we'll go to World Championship. And we'd done half a year EJC and then mm-hmm. one year in the stock. And we're there. And I just, the first year was was really, really tough. Mm. I was, I was, it was, it was, it was one of those things you look back and you're like, why didn't you just go America or, or England or something? Because it would have made more sense. Because I got so used, to, so used to being so far back because I was always losing. I was, you know, at the board of almost getting lapped at some rate at the start of the year. I think yeah. I, I got lapped at Philip Island my first round. Wow. Because I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't close to ready. Um, and I think in hindsight, we probably should have done it a different way. Because it took a lot. It take, it's taken a long time now for me to get to be comfortable being in the front group. Because I got so used to being expected to be okay. Twentieth is a good result. To now be like fifth is a bad result for mm. me now. Um, so just I think the mindset. I think I wish we'd done something different. But I was racing world championship, and it was the same. I just get a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker. Second year comes round. Somehow we still got a spot. Expanded the team. Um, and we came gun ho. We did so many laps, 10,000 yeah. hours um, at Phillip Island. And I, I came there, um, and from going from, you know, I scored one championship point in 2016. And I was probably the closest I got was 30 seconds from the win over the race distance. Phillip Island, my fastest lap was four tenths off the fastest lap of the race. And I was eight seconds off the win. I finished 10th. Wow. So it, it was one of those things just we keep building, would get there. But Unfortunately, other, other factors, you, they don't want someone that slowly gets there. They want someone that's there. Yep. And you haven't got time to slowly get there. So I missed my boat uh, for the time being anyway. Um, I had an offer from, from Kawasaki Factory to ride for them in 2018. Um, and Je- uh, Kawasaki Japan wanted a Japanese rider. Yep. Um, and so that all fell through. I ended up, Dorna and Kawasaki put me on a different team. Um, the team was Italian. And the Italians just, they're per, they're, it's like when you watch Ferrari in F1 at the moment. They're just, it's always, we're right and you're wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I failed with them and, and came back home. And, you know, I found my home now at the moment at, at, at SBK and enjoying being at home and not having to be on a flight all the time. But, yeah, it was tough. Now, this is eight years, like, since then, since your first basically trip over. Um, you must have learnt so much in that time. Absolutely, I wouldn't be half the rider that I am now if I hadn't gone over, and I don't. I don't regret going over, you know. But it was a tough way to learn. Mm. Um, you know, some of the some I had, some, but I had some great opportunities that came through it. Um, I actually got offered uh, by Kenneth Safoglu to come do some training with him in, in 2017, um, and that was unreal. I was one of I was the first white guy to ever be allowed into Kenan's Kenan's private track. Wow! And that was. Uh, that was an unreal experience. Um, so they, they have this, this go-kart track that's immaculate uh, off the highway in Turkey, maybe about two hours out of Istanbul. And there's, a, there's, a, there's like a, a track carer. And so we pull up, me and Dad, um, and we also had my mechanic and my crew chief with me. And we, just, we don't look like we belong there. Mm. Can't speak a word of Turkish. 
And we're like, we're here for, we're here for Kenan. And he's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, we're here, we're here. Kenan said to come here. And you've got all these Turkish fans that just sit on the fence. We're obviously used to people yeah. trying to meet Kenan. He's like, no, you're not. We're like, yeah, we are. He lifts his shirt. He's got this gun here. He's like, no, you're not. So we, 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 we show him the WhatsApp. Yep. We get messages from Keenan. We said, this is Keenan. He puts up his WhatsApps. Numbers are the same. He's like, oh, oh, okay. Come in. We're in there sitting. All this, like, more Red Bull cans than you can point, poke a stick at. Wow. This, this, this facility was unreal. He's got his Italian, um, not Italian, his Ferrari Spider 458 or whatever it was sitting there in a garage. Um, other, other cars that I don't even, don't even know what they were called. Yep. Just these exotic supercars. And we're just sitting there like, oh, this is a bit unusual. Keenan arrives with Top Rack Raz Gadioglu, the Anku twins, um, his, his uh, niece or nephew, Bahadi Sofoglu. Um, and the Jack Kerr comes out, pulls out his gun in the air. Bang, 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 bang. Big party as they arrive come in and then I realized that it was a Red Bull filming day and I was I was there pretty much to be this is what Red Bull doesn't do if you don't have Red Bull so I got I got towered up for two days but you know I learned like just experiences like that alone are worth the the eight out the eight years that we spent there and some of the years we shouldn't have been there some of the years we should we deserve to be there but it was was great and I'll carry those memories for life with me like as a as a super sport rider Keenan's going to go down as like he'll be the greatest, the greatest. Ever. yeah must be good to learn from somebody like that when you're going over to do super sport yeah well i i think i gained keenness respect only in because i was always because i knew i didn't have the track experience yep i was i was sitting at, at the at the ready to go out of pet lane a minute before pet lane ended and so there i'm, I'm waiting and keenan would also always come up and so we're there and as the red light goes out to for everyone to start it's a race First year, I didn't make it to the first turn in the lead. Um, and then in the second year, I started to make it to the first turn, I'm still in front of him. Second turn, I'm still in front of him. And I'm sure he wasn't pushing at maximum, but it was always a race start out of pit lane. And when we get to Sepang and it's, I, I won a lap. Wow. I won the first lap of FP1 out of pit lane. And after FP1, he comes and says, well done. Like he congratulated me for beating him for a lap. Wow. Like that was the level that he was on. That me beating him for a lap around Sepang, where I'm probably riding, I was riding so, I had never seen the track and I was probably breaking 20 meters too late at some points. Yep. He was like, good job. And that's when he invited us to Turkey. So yeah, it was, it was, it was unreal. Respect. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like I, Top Rack never liked me. Yep. Um, I raced Top Rack in 600 and he, I, like I said, I was there too early. Yep. And he just didn't like me. He didn't talk to me when I went to Turkey. Um, didn't talk to me when I, I raced World Superbike. But Keenan, Keenan, I have a lot of respect for, and the Onku twins, uh, they were really, really welcoming, and I really respect them for that as well. When, when you like, went over there for 2014, obviously uh, your dad, Greg, came over. Who, who else came over from Oz? That was it. Wow. T- t- 2014, it was just me and Dad. Yeah. Um, dad running spanners and track spotting and feeding me, housing me, doing everything, yep. and me just being the idiot kid that rode and, and probably caused a lot more trouble for him than I needed to. Um, 2015, we brought uh, my rider coach with me, yep. uh, Al Samuels, who was with me from when I was a junior uh, up until I got to World Championship. He was with me. Um, and a mechanic called Daniel Plastid, 
who'd worked at EJC the year before. Mm. Um, that was it. That was our first year when we ran our own team. It was just the four of us. Yeah. Um, so we were always we were always a small pack team, even World Championship. Um, it was just me and Dad, uh, and Dan Dan the first year. Yeah. Um, and then we brought Shane Kindress in for the, for the second year. Um, but the whole point of the team was always to be a small Anzac team that could bring that knowledge back home and try and, and trying to that was the idea of the team was to bring the knowledge back home to Australia. Yep. It never worked like that. Um, egos get in the way and, and everything else and our, our tracks are, are different. Yep. Um, but yeah, we, nev- we, we were never a big team with endless supplies or it was just always a small team, small effort, small budget that was supposed to be in 600 that was in World Championship. Mm. A bike that works over there wouldn't work here, hey? Not at all. Maybe yeah. Phillip Island. Yeah. But even Phillip Island is unique. Um, you know, their, tra- their, their braking zones are so much longer. The space that they have, you know, we're talking 150 metre braking zones into corners that are still 130, 140k an hour with massive lean angle for so long. But even the surface that they build the tracks on is different. So even at, at, a, at a basic level, you know, the way you need to get the tyres to work is different. And so the way you've got to have the geometry to work. Yeah. So we set our bikes up in Australia to be smash the brakes hold the brakes for as long as you can, turn, get out. Yep. Middle of the corner doesn't really matter. Um, whereas, you know, Europe, it's about smashing the brakes and then f- getting the bike to be able to steer and steer in the corner as fast as you can and then not really have to hold the brakes. Yep. Um, and that, that, in that difference, it, it is different because even at Phillip Island, you're not really braking hard. And so it's, the, the, it never worked how it was supposed to. Um, but yeah, they are different. How, how have you learnt uh, riding style? <sighs> I don't know. Ten thousand hours is one <laughs> thing, but but like, is it being constant coaching? Yeah, like I I, I always try to, or well, Dad always tried to get me learning from different people. So even yeah. when I was doing flat track, I um, I had a guy called Tony Garay, had his own dirt track. He was the track care for Nepean. Um, and he was big. He, he has seven kids, all really, really talented um, on a dirt bike. And he was just, he'd nail you with the, for the AMA style. Yep. Um, and then it was the same when I went to road racing. It was like, okay, you need to, need to nail this style. Who's going to coach you? So we went to California Superbike School, met Al Samuels, and he taught me the basics of, of everything. You know, this is where your, your butt needs to sit. And I've always been taught your, your, the ass of your ass sits on the ass of the seat. And that's something that stick with me my entire career. I can't hang off a bike more. Mm-hmm. It feels unnatural to me. Yep. You know, you pivot your body forward. So those habits that you learn from when you're young, they stick with you. So you need to make sure that who you're learning from knows what they're talking about. Otherwise, you're going to carry these bad habits that are really tough to change yep. later. So I, I gathered as much knowledge as I could. You know, when I was a junior, went to Europe. Uh, we made contact with Juan Haslam. Uh, spent a lot of time with Leon Camilla. We tried to find the right people to, to dig as much knowledge as you could from. Yep. Were you a technical person? Not at all. No. No. I, How's that I, work? <laughs> I'm not technical at all. I, I, I have no mechanical knowledge. I, you know, I, I struggle to put a wheel into a motorbike. I've got no yep. mechanical sympathy, no mechanical understanding. Um, I'm really good at explaining what I'm feeling on the bike, but I couldn't explain to you why. Yep. I'm feeling it on the bike. And I don't think as a racer you truly need to. If you have the right people around you, you can, you can give them the information and they can do what they need to. Yep. 
if I'm trying to taint the information because I want a certain setup change, that's when you, you're, you're wasting your time. Mm. But no, I have absolutely no technical knowledge whatsoever. Now you're uh, outspoken. Like you don't mind saying anything that you'll say. No. So most people would say if I ask them what's the best bike they'll ride, they'll say it's the one I'm currently on. But what's been the best bike you've ridden in the time? I wish you hadn't set me up like that because it really is the best one, the one I'm riding at it the is? moment. It is. The, yeah. um, the electronics on it make it fun. Okay. Um, the, you know, the, I, I enjoy being able to come in and go, I need this, I need this. Because mm-hmm. I'm not, I can't do a wheelie. Like, I can't do anything other than go fast. I have, yeah. I have no, I never did any goon riding, I never did motocross, so I haven't developed any skills other than brake hard, turn, go fast. Mm-hmm. So having electronics at the level that I have now makes a difference. But to answer your question and make it fun, if I took out the BMW, um, I know my answer should be the World Superbike, um, but it sucked. Yeah, the bike was just a, a piece of garbage. Yep. Um, so it would probably honestly be a 400, like one of my, one of my training bikes. Yep. Like I, I did the St. George two hour last week mm. and um, it's so much fun. Me and Glenn Allerton were racing and I'm there like laughing at him. You know, we're racing like for keeps and I'm yep. there laughing, we're both there laughing. Like little bikes to me is where I just get my enjoyment because there's no pressure. Everything feels like it's taken 10 years to get to the next corner. Yep. Um, and the bike is sucks. Like the, the bike is following, like there's no suspension, but I just, I, I enjoy, when I enjoy something, I think that's the best thing. Mm. Are they the best training for racing? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you look at cost to reward, you can go buy a 400 or a 300 or 250, whatever it is from the records for a thousand bucks, put some crash knobs on it, go for your life, crash it a thousand times. You can still ride it. Mm. You know, you look at some of these purpose built things and I won't, I'll try not to get myself into any more trouble than I, I get myself into now, but the purpose you, you spend over 10 grand for what, you know? Yeah. It's great if you've got 20 or 30 bikes that are all the same, but you know, a lot of those purpose built bikes are designed to break. So you have to take them to the purpose built facility to get them repaired. Right. And so it's just an endless pool. Whereas you get a road bike that's designed to last a hundred thousand Ks. Don't have to think about it. Mm. And if you have four or five of your mates on them and you go to a go-kart track, go, go, go for your life. When you first started, obviously, racing and everything like that, was the go-kart track scene happening much? Like, it seems really good at the moment. No, like, when we first started, there was not, like, you went to a racetrack to train. Yep. You know, and when you're on a 150, the last thing you want to go is to, you know, Eastern Creek or Phillip Island because... Yeah. The corners are too big. So you try and go to tracks like Broadford or Mac Park or maybe Winton if you're desperate. Um, but there was, there was no go-kart scene. Mm. And I think a lot of it came from Europe um, and the supermoto scene. Yep. And people, would, and especially in England, uh, England pit bikes, were, it was a massive thing. And then it yep. went to Europe and eventually it started to come here. But I think the hardest, thing, the hardest barrier for Australia was the restrictions here. Yep. It was so uptight on everything. Mm. Like you go do a high cart, I know it's not quite the same, but you do go to a high cart in Europe and it's chaos. Yeah. You know, you're with your mates and you're driving them into steel poles and I've, I've ripped wheels off of high carts. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll fix it and you can go back out again, no cost. You do something like that in Australia, they're going to call the police on you. Yeah, and you get tasered. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the, the restriction was the hardest bit, I think, for go-kart training in Australia. Yeah. You know, and now it's a lot more, obvi- uh, more accepted 
a lot easier to do. You know, we get access to a lot of tracks through Supermoto and through the 400s. I know that uh, Oakley and stuff in Victoria with with Wayne is a lot easier now. And you've got yeah. Ipswich up there with Mike and Troy and Brock. So now it's it's easy. And I think it is a, a better way to train because it's easy. Throw your bike in the back of your Ute or your van, yeah. drive there, put warmers on, go for your life a couple of hours, come back. There's no massive drive, no big team effort. Yeah. And so for weeknight. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can go out on Tuesday night and get three or four hours in and get, you know, a bit of fitness. Still yeah. not boxing fitness, but you still get a bit of bike fitness. And uh, quite often, especially, say, Queensland Mini Moto, you're pretty much racing a lot of the guys and the girls that you're racing with for a weekend too. Yeah. I think, I think that's the great – like, you're doing a similar discipline with yeah. the similar people, so you get that habit. Mm. I think before, before that, it was just for your dirt bike, maybe go do some motocross or some yeah. off-bushing. And now you can do something that's a bit more direct in line with the discipline that you're yep. you're going to do. Do you still enjoy riding a supermoto bike? I like riding supermoto, but I don't think I ride supermoto in the correct way. Like I ride it like a road bike. Yep. Like I I don't drift the rear wheel. I don't. I can't do a wheelie. Yep. Like I can't do it. I can do a, a power wheelie, but I can't do a wheelie. So I'm I'm quick on a. If I go race supermoto boys, and it's the road section only. I do. I, I can win the race. Yeah. Um, as soon as you saw a dirt in, section in there, forget it. Um, so I, I, I do do supermoto training. You know, I've got a, a, K, a KD, well, KDM. What am I saying? A KX450 and a um, TM450 at home, and I'll, I'll go throw them in and have a ride. Yep. But I think he probably ever get someone like Troy Herfoss. Um, he'd probably towel me up in those in those tight corners because he's just got the supermoto skills. Yep. Um, that I just don't have. What is the TM? 2018, 2019. Cool machine. It's a very cool machine. 2017. That's 2017. Yeah, we got it when I was in Europe um, from TM Andorra. Yeah, right. And bought it home. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of of those things, you know, like I was really fortunate in where I lived when I was living in Europe. I made a connection with a lot of the top end guys, you know. So I met a guy called Shane Stratton who was training Alex Rins at the time. Yeah. And he runs, runs a TM shop. So he's pretty much like, here, ride this TM. If you love it, buy one. If you hate it, no worries. I got on it and I'm just like, oh, God damn it. Now I need to buy one. Yeah. Oh, well, now I need, Dad needs to buy one. I, I say me. I, I don't buy many things really from bike racing. Um, so we bought the TM and it's, it is a good bike. Yep. It struggles here because the tracks aren't quite fast enough. Um, like Europe, everything is faster. Really? Supermoto tracks and all go kart tracks. Yep. So, like you go to a supermoto track in in Europe and the one we used to go to all the time was Alcaraz you know me Leon Camio Chaz Davies um, and a few others would go there probably once a week and it's a two and a half minute long track and it's third fourth and fifth gear like it's a fast track yep Um, so you come here and you know you go to a track like Newcastle it's second gear the TM struggles because it wants the speed to to make it work because the chassis is so stiff so when we go to a short track I normally just run the, the dirt bike because it's a bit flexier it's a bit more forgiving yep if you got a fast track like everywhere did the team would excel at almost like wakefield yeah right it's that level of speed that it likes yep. morgan park <laughs> <laughs> probably a bit stiff for morgan park i might throw it back out on the back straight yeah do you like riding there at morgan park yeah i didn't used to um but I, it's one of those things i went good on the weekends so maybe i do now yep. um I struggle a lot with the bumps. Mm. Like I, I, I like billiard smooth. I'm, I'm a bit of a princess. Um, <laughs> I like I didn't do motocross. So I'm not comfortable with 
yeah. the viciousness of it. So the back straight I struggle with. Like, um, you know, I had a f- half a second lead on, on Wayne on that first lap. And by the end of the back straight, he was on my ass again. So yep. I was definitely struggling with the bump. There's something I need to, to keep working on. But it, the layout is awesome. Mm. I wish they'd moved that wall at turn three, three. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That, that wall is, needs to go. Mm. Um, besides that, the track is, it is a good layout. It is fun to ride. It just, it's unfortunate the ground's so soft that even though they keep resurfacing, and they do keep resurfacing and trying to make it better, yep. it just keeps moving on them. Yeah. Yeah, you can, sell, you can tell that they're trying. Yeah, you can see where the, the curbs used to be, you know, yeah. a good foot above the ground and now it's yeah. a foot underneath the track. So they've definitely been, they've been trying yeah. to fix it. It's just they've been unlucky. Yeah. Good crowd on the weekend. Yeah, really good. Mm. Like probably one of the best we've had besides Darwin. Mm. Yeah, no, it was good to see. Obviously, I was like, wow, this is huge. And yeah, um, yeah they try it, that track. Morgan Park normally shows up though, I think. I think you, you normally yep. say Darwin's probably the top because what else are you going to do in Darwin? Yeah. And then you've got Morgan Park and Wakefield are pretty close. Mm. Um, Probably now Morgan Park will take over Wakefield since Wakefield's going to get shut down. So, yeah, yeah I think Morgan Park, they've, they've always turned up. It's been a good crowd. I think, and, and this is something I said to a few others, is it's far enough away from Brisbane where it's a ride and it's good, a good ride. There's some good roads to there because you looked in town, every motel had motorbikes in it. Mm. A lot of people there, you know, it was like a bike show at the top. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, it, it was booked out. Like, you yeah. know, you try, if you try to book a, t- a seat or a room yep. the weekend before, you would, you would have struggled. I think, you know, you also get everyone coming up from Tenerfield and yeah. um, from Kilimanjaro and you get, you know, all the local towns, they all kind of, they all go to each other's events. Yep. And so you, you get a big enough crowd that it, it's worthwhile going and it, it's enjoyable. Are you, are you a nervous person? No, not really. Do you remember rocking over in 2014 to the first time you did like a test or something over there? What you... Yeah, the first time I went over in 2014, um, I, the first week I went and watched MotoGP. Yep. And the second week I went to EJC. What, what um, GP? I went and watched Barcelona. Wow. So that was, a, that was a really good one to watch. That was yeah. when, um, it was funny, well, we watched qualifying um, and I met, I met Brett, what's his name? Oh God, his first name is Brett. I can't remember his last name. He's the Valentino Rossi's mechanic. Yep. Um, now works for 727 Motor. That's yep. the one. Um, he, we met him and he's like, come, come in the box. So that was really cool. I, I got to sit on Valentino Rossi's bike and, did all that as a kid. But the first time I walked up to Misano for, for my first race, I was probably like an egotistical little shit. I'm right. like, I'm, I'm a two-time Australian champion. You know, I have a claim to be a third, but MA took it off me, so I'm a two-time champion, but I feel like I'm a third, three-time champion. I'm the shit, I'm gonna dominate. So the first round, I had no nerves. I thought I was gonna kick it. Right. And I got to FE1 and went, oh, oh no. Okay, this is, this is, this is the big leagues now. But I, I never been someone that gets nervous. You know, it's one of those things. I, I struggle to, to hold, hold on to things. So I don't hold, hold on to nerves for an event. I struggle to hold on to a grudge. Yep. Like, I'm very apologetic. I'm like, you know what, it's okay, whatever. Um, so no, I, I don't get nervous at all. Mm. Masano, what a, what a way to get your toes in the water. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was an introduction to Europe because um, the toilet facilities there are the thing that stick out to me most. What do you mean? They're awful. Yeah. Yeah, you would think like Mizano, like everything else about Mizano, yep. the track, the stands, the location, unreal. Yep. Toilet block, there's this one shitty little toilet block and you go into the showers and I don't know how crude I can be on, on the podcast, but the, the shower, um, in each corner of the shower, people have decided, you know what, I can't be bothered going to the toilet. Wow. So you get mounds of human feces in every shower corner of the shower block and I'm just like, what the hell is this, man? 
So that bit is the bit that sticks with me the most is of wow. my first weekend. Not so much the racing. I think I finished 13th or something and I was in the, in the second group. But the, just the toilet was just like, oh, this is grim. Wow, that's like yeah, it's never not been what there. Not what I expect. Right? Yeah, and yep. it's, it's, and I, I, I laugh because Lois Baz put up something on Twitter about it the other week. Mm. Um, it's the only track. Yep. It's, not like, it's not like a paddock thing. It's a Mizano thing. Wow. Which doesn't make sense because it's the same people in the paddock every weekend. Yep. Like we don't get different people. Yeah, it's so same. I don't understand why just Mizano. I think, I don't know what, I, I don't know what it is, but it was, it's, it's, and it's there every year that I've been. Yeah. It's the like, same, same road show everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand it, but that's, that's what sticks out to me most about that first weekend. You said something before about America. Why'd you say America? Is that something that at one point you looked at that should be the path that you might look at going? It's one of, like, you look at American racing now and you look yep. at what, like, Luke Power's doing, for example. He's killing it. Mm-hmm. And so you just, you always think, you know, you're, you're always going to be aware that you can't make the perfect decision every time. Yep. Um, I think the only reason I think of America is how good the championship look is now. And when I spent a little bit of time over there in 2019, didn't race or anything, just I was over there doing some training with uh, my crew chief at the time and went and watched one of the rounds, but... No, I don't think it was ever really truly on the cards for me or something that I've, I've ever had an active think about, just something yeah. that, you know, it's a championship that I watch probably more closely than any other national championship. It seems like it's in a pretty healthy spot now as a national championship. Yeah, it was. When I went over there, it looked like it was almost the, the brink of death. Yeah. You know, because there was only two factory bikes. There was the Suzuki's and the Yamaha's and that was here. Yeah. And everything else was a privateer, whereas now it looks like, you know, the rules, I think, are still the same. They're... they're higher end than well superbike spec mm. they've got the pseudo swing arms and full-blown engines like the crazy crap but it works for them and you know they've got world-class names yep. the competition is healthy the racing's good and they and the same thing as what f1 does they pump out that premium class content all the time they've got that moto america race show yeah or whatever it's called where you get the behind the scenes yep. people eat that shit up yeah you get the behind the scenes and you're like oh i feel like i'm watching something i shouldn't be watching Mm. But it's not even that. It's just that it's real. That's right. You're not getting the media trained, oh, yes, this weekend was good and the bike was good. You're actually getting the real crap. Yeah. And so that brings in more attention and more fans because everyone loves reality TV shows. Yeah. And so I think that's why Moto America is doing so well. And the thing that we all want is authenticity. Everyone says that that's what they want. But you, you, you rock up to these things every time and it's just the same fed thing which yeah, is, I, and i understand sponsors have got to be happy and everything like that but yeah but i think nice there's an element of realness right like yeah i don't think anyone expects you to be perfect all the time yes um you know because no no human is perfect no but you look at like wayne and troy yeah just to bring it to australia they've had massive biffs yeah um but it's real and so yep. everyone respects it and there's no one holds holds your grudge yeah so i don't think there's any ever needs to be a fear to be like oh if i say the wrong thing there's obviously the wrong thing. Like if you bag out your team, you're an asshole because that team has put that much effort into you and you're yep. just bagging them out because you're having a bad day. Mm. But if you're like, oh, this person here, he's an asshole, da da da, da here to the moment, yep. I think that's fine. Absolutely. And, and if you look at uh, Saturday morning, um, Crew and Troy, like that was, they had a huge run-in on the really? circuit. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a run-in. But within 10 minutes... They're in the paddock and they're sitting next to each other signing autographs. Yeah. You, you, well, you can't hold on to that. Last, last year, me and, I, me and Troy had a biff on track. Right. Um, I, was, I was slowing down, looking for a toe. 
Yep. Um, Troy didn't want to give me a toe. Yep. And so he ran me off the track. Yep. And I was, I came into pits and I'm swearing black and blue, I'm going to bash his head in and out of run. And just my luck, Trevor Hedge is there writing it all down. Oh, up, goes the, up goes the website. Yep. Like the Neffers, da da da. Because by the time Troy comes in five minutes later, I'm calm, I'm cool. Yeah. I go out there and like clap him and, you know, he gives me the, the violin. Yep. Five minutes after that, he's in my pit and we're having this conversation. Like, yep. I can't hold a grudge. Yep. Um, and I think most of the rest are the same. You know, where it, when you have a, a close moment, mm. your heart rate goes up and your brain goes out the window. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think if you people want to really hold accountable the words you say or the actions you take in those first few minutes, yeah. they're just not realistic. So Absolutely. I think when, you, when you're real, people get real and they, they respect it and they can understand it and move on. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing with that, I forget the name of the series, but the Moto America series. Mm. That's what we're actually seeing, and, yeah. and people are watching it and enjoying it. And motocross and supercross do a really good job with yeah, it. Yeah, they do. Like a really, really good I job. I think America in general do it really well. Yeah, yeah, they do. They've grown up on it. You know, mm. they, they they basically binge on that stuff. Mm. Um, there's no reason why, especially with the characters that are around our sport currently, and the bikes. The bikes are beautiful. Like that M1000 you ride is one of the most gorgeous looking bikes ever built. Thank you. I um, built it myself. Yeah, sure. But, isn't it? Like, if you look at our whole paddock, it's very, it's very professional-looking paddock now. Absolutely. Like, there, there's no reason why we can't do something similar. Yeah. The only, the only thing stopping us is the people that run us ourselves. Yeah. Um, and obviously, they just need to come together and be like, okay, this is what we're We're getting there. We now, we now have our own press conference, finally. Yes. Yep. So, well done, uh, MA. Yep. Um, you know, Tom, Tom Reynolds does a pretty good job trying to run podcasts, and he, he wants to do it. Yes. He just needs to be given the budget to do it properly. Absolutely. Yeah. And he runs around with this little GoPro and it's like, and puts it up on Facebook, which yeah. is the start of it. But we need to be able to do it on a, on a better scale to actually bring in, you know, we've got, we're on Stan Sport. There's no reason why we can't poke Stan Sport and be like, hey, yeah. you know, give us a little bit of cash. Just give us an, a, one extra camera to put on someone's shoulder. Yeah. And we'll go and get like a little reality TV show and you can have a little extra. Yeah. When the race finishes, you can be like, watch more. And I think that will be make a difference too for our sport. And same for the sponsors. They actually get to see something else apart from the 16 laps or 32 laps on Sunday. You know? Yeah, well, it's like you watch yeah. the race, you don't see any of the sponsors. The bikes no. are moving that fast and the cameras are that far away. The sponsors yep. get nothing. Mm. The spon- what the, when the sponsors get it is when the cameras are in the pits, on the pit walls or yep. they're close enough or they get mentioned or whatever it is. Mm. So the more content there is, the more opportunity for for the sponsors, the more value you can give them when you're trying to get more sponsors. Hey, look, this is all the stuff that you're yep. invested in. There can only be positives. There can't be negatives to it. And the, the other side to it, even on a smaller scale, um, you look at the intros for each of the round. So the Darwin one that was done via the Zoom, Tom obviously did it via the Zoom. Uh, you know, coming to Darwin, blah, 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 we're going to be with the supercars. Things like that can be also done remotely, like... I'm sure, Lachlan, you know filmers in Sydney or yourself that could do it at the local BMW place or in front of your bike or something to have that high level of presentation as well. It's It's a start. It's a time thing. Yeah. All it is is time preparation. Yeah. Like we could make it look tenfold better if it was just organised one time better. Yeah. Um, It's all it is. It's it's an extra 45 minutes to an hour. Like obviously... You know, no, I don't think anyone in Australia besides maybe one or two people is a full-time racer. Like, we all have jobs and we Absolutely. all have things outside of it. But we all want to see our sport grow and succeed. Yeah. Um, and so if, you, if they came to us with an actual plan 
hey, this is what we're planning on doing instead of just give us more money and make sure you have these stickers on your bike. Yeah. But they actually said, okay, this money that you're paying for your entry fees and this and this and this, this is what it's going towards to actually improve the championship. Mm. Everyone would be on board. Everyone would give up the extra couple of hours to go and make the sport a bit better and bigger for everyone for the future. It's worked for a drive to survive with Formula One. That's what we were discussing before. Yeah. You know, it's like, <clears throat> it's one of those things where any eyeball is a good eyeball. Yep. It doesn't matter where it comes from or where it starts. As long as they're not coming in here and then instead of going, I know everything because I saw on YouTube. Mm. It can't be a bad thing to have more eyeballs and, and more fans and more engagement and more everything. And so however we get that, whether that be through a documentary series or through a podcast or, or, or through yep. a YouTube video or whatever, more eyeballs, more money in the sport, yep. more riders in the sport, more quality, more class, more everything. With competitors, um, how does it compare to your last time in World Superbike, riding the bike here, on here? Our level seems pretty damn good at the moment. Our level is really high. Yeah. Like, I, I think that you take out the top five, maybe, World Superbikes, and then you bring the rest of the field here, they would be on the same level. Yeah. Um, like, the level here is high for our style of track. I think our track, like, it's like when you go to England, you watch Tom Sykes, for example, really strong World Superbike competitor, goes to England, hasn't performed. Yeah. I think it would be the same here in Australia, and it goes both ways. You know, we've been 10, like, Wayne and Glenn Allerton and Josh Waters, they spent 20 years racing these tracks. They know these tracks and they're, they're at the very, very pinnacle yep. of what the lap times we can achieve on these racetracks are. Someone like Josh, John, uh, Johnny Ray isn't going to come here and go a second and a half faster than us. No. Just on the same bike. If he bought his World Superbike bike, maybe. On the same bike, he's not a second and a half faster than us. Like, I go over there and I'm, I'm, I was three seconds off the pace on that, or 2.8, whatever it was, on that two-year-old World Superbike. Yep. And that's on their testing tracks. So the level is, is, is extraordinarily high. Um, and I just wish that we could portray that a little bit more. Yeah. What's it like riding a World Superbike? I, I, I rode, the one I rode probably wasn't, wasn't incredible. Like it was still an amazing bike. Don't get me wrong, I, I'm not ungrateful for the opportunity that I, ha that I had to ride it. Um, it's, just the, it's just the electronics were phenomenal. Um, the qualifying tyre hurt my brain. The amount yeah. of grip that you had for 11 corners. Wow. And then I tip into the 12th and final corner and it's like, you have no tyre now, good luck. Like the, 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 the level of grip to nothing, with no warning. Really? That, yeah, they took me, because took me, you only get one. You get one go. Mm. You get no practice, no nothing. It's just, you got lots of grip and you're like, how much grip? We don't know, good luck. And so you take the first half of the lap, you're trying to work out how much grip you got because you push in the front. And you're like, okay, I think I'll work it out. Next four corners, you go good. And the red tire goes off and you're like, oh God. So it took me, it took me to the last race to actually work it out and, and do a good lap. Yep. Good lap for me and, and that bike. Um, but you just realize that they're on the absolute limit every corner, every lap. Um, but you, know, you have custom swing arms, bigger fuel tanks, more buttons than you can poke a stick at. Yeah. Like, I, I struggle to press buttons now. I don't like pressing buttons because it's too much to think about on, the, on our tracks here. Yep. They've got, like, a second row 
of buttons on each side. So you've got, you know, you've got change your brake pressure, change the fuel mapping, change the traction control, change the anti-wheelie control, change rear brake pressure, change this, change that. Communicate with your team. Like you, I had the dash that communicates with you yep. and stuff like that. And you get messages from race control. So I didn't realize you, every time there's a yellow flag, they give you a message. Oh, really? Yellow, yeah. They don't yeah. show on TV, but you, I got yellow flag, sector three, yeah. checkered flag, final lap. Even with all that, I'm like, oh, cool. That's something you don't know about. Yep. Um, but for me, the world, the world championship, my world superbike experience was pretty, pretty tough. Um, I'd come into that team and there'd already been five riders before me. So I knew what I was walking into. I just obviously yep. wasn't walking into yeah. the bee's dick. You know, I was walking into <laughs> to a hellhole. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't realise yeah, how I much know. of a hell... Oh, it was bad. Yeah. Like, and it's one, of those, it's one of those unfortunate things where you can say, oh, it was bad. But it wasn't, it wasn't like something I could point a finger at. You know, my crew chief was really passionate really wanted you to succeed, was trying everything he wanted. And it's a team of six or seven people. Like there's six or seven people there. You've got two mechanics and two data technicians, a suspension technician and your crew chief. They all desperately want you to succeed. Yep. No one's there just to get collect a paycheck. Most of them are working for free. Mm-hmm. So they're all there to, to succeed. There's just that the bike we were given, yep. you, could, you, can't, you can't polish a shit. You mm. just couldn't. Yep. Um, so, and it was the same when I raced 2018 for, for uh, what's your sport team yeah you just is the the people there are passionate but the materials that they love they say materials all the time the materials we were given you couldn't do it so say the zx10r how far off johnny ray's bike is that bike this the stock standard bike we're talking about yeah like off the road a lot yeah <laughs> a lot more than they tell you when they sell it yeah the um you know um the engine mode, like the engine itself, um, I, I don't think I'm allowed to tell you the number, but there you can buy different engines when you're in the Kawasaki support program. Ah. Um, so we were a Kawasaki supported team. Yeah. We got new frames that are not frames that you can buy that are not built the same as the frames that are sold. So ah. they have allowances in their manufacturing process. Yeah. Um, and the allowances are perfect for the race bikes. Yeah. So when you bike, get a race chassis, and I had, I had, I got given three. I had Epis one, Epis two, Epis three. They were the chassis numbers. Yeah. They're completely different. Different stiffness, different belt mounting, different engine mounts. So you get a different engine. Mm. Um, and there's a multitude of different numbers depending on the rule set. Yeah. Um, so the World Supersport engines are off its head. Yeah. They've got bigger fuel tanks. Um, you've got custom swing arms, you've got light racing wheels. Obviously, you've got carbon. Uh, I think yeah, World Superbike with carbon fiber fairings. World Super Sport, you're not allowed to run carbon fiber for some reason. Um, and then you've obviously got the uh, Motec electronics. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I've I've ridden a ZX10 standard once, and it doesn't feel like what I felt like a ZX10 was because I've only ever ridden ZX10 wow. race bikes. Yeah. That must be yeah, just such a neat feeling coming from you know, racing something like that, to go back to something factory would be just so weird. Yeah, well, I obviously, um, I only ever rode on the road for one year. Yep. Um, and it was terrifying. Yep. Um, only because I was riding this little shitty Vespa scooter. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'd never have ridden on the road 
on a on a standard bike. Yep. I've done a couple of laps when I've had to run in an engine or something in this last minute or whatever. But I've always ever been race bike focused. Yep. So I probably don't appreciate the level of change and effort that goes into making a race bike because I've never ridden yep. a bike with standard suspension and just gone down a track day. Mm. What do you, what like, you're 22 here. If you wanted to, like, you could race for another 18, 20, whatever years here. What do, what do you see yourself doing here? In Australia? Yeah. Because you said something to me funny yesterday afternoon and I was like, I'm, I'm interested to hear. Yeah. I, um, I've been running into MA head on for a while. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't like the way it's, it's, been, it's been dealt with. I'm very unimpressed with the fact that I've been penalised three times for a rule that isn't written. Okay. Three, different, three different rules mm-hmm. that aren't written and I've been given penalties. Um, and then again at Morgan Park, I was given a penalty, an additional penalty, because the penalty that's written in the rule book they deemed wasn't a big enough penalty, which is just how can, you, how, how can we exist as a race team and, and, and you know, our job is to push the limits and work in those grey areas. Yep. How can we do that when you're not even functioning off your own rule book? So I won't, I won't be racing in Australia again next year. Not because I don't like the competition. I think the competition is very high. And I still, have a, I still clearly have a lot to learn because I'm not winning every race. Um, so it's not that. It's just that when, when it's not on a, a level playing field when, it, when the goalposts are changing on you constantly. I have some other issues with, with the management side, but I'm not in, interested in making my life any more difficult for myself by yep. pointing names and, and calling people out as much as I would love to. Um, but yeah, I won't, I won't be here next year. That, but not not because of the comp- competition side. Um, and 99% is the same as everything. 99% is great. It's just those 1% of people that are total assholes. <laughs> um, you know, I've had issues where I've had to go to court just so I can run my race number. Yeah. Like, why make why you know a sport that costs so much money, and you want numbers on the grid? Why are you making it so difficult for someone just to run the damn race number? And shit like that is just. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. I've lost a lot of passion for, for the sport because of the bullshit that we had to deal with. So switching it up, doing something different will obviously reignite the passion for me and, and my whole team. So that's what we're doing next year. What, what makes you passionate about racing? I don't know. It changes a lot. I love, I almost love qualifying more than I love racing. Purely because I, I love, when I, when I know I've done a, a perfect lap, and I've done a great job. I get a lot of sense of enjoyment from it. Mm. Um, I'm learning to love racing more and, and enjoying that competitive side now that I'm at the front. A lot of time it was about doing a good job because a good job was 20th. Mm. Now a good job is the podium. So now I'm getting more used to and, and more drive for wanting to race and win in the races as opposed to just doing the one lap yep. qualifying. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really know the true answer to that question. Um, it's just a mo- it's one of those things. Is, part of it is probably habit, um, but I love competing. Uh, I've, I've always been a competitive person. I've always loved sport. Um, you know, I went to school and every year I'd play a different sport because I wanted to learn a new skill. Yeah. And I feel like I haven't mastered half of racing a bike yet, so I've still got a lot of new skills to learn. Awesome, mate. That's yeah. We might as well pretty much wrap most of that up there because. Yeah, I was really interested to hear all those sorts of facets to it. Like, where's the competitive side come from? Where you, you know, dirt track was it? How how did you start through that? And we've wrapped a fair bit of that sort of side of it up. Um, I, I find it really interesting about you saying about uh, a smooth dirt track. You're really really fast on, and that transfers over to a road. 
Um, and then obviously the doing a ride to uh, Superbike School, you go do that and that sort of holds you forever. I, I, I fit in the same thing like I did dirt track a bit as a kid. If I go to do enduro where I go and stand up or something, everything feels completely fine. Yeah. Those habits must just stick so much. When you said it, I was just like, oh, that's so true. They must stick, eh? Yeah, I think it's just one of those things. It's just, it's like when you read, you don't think, mm. why am I reading? You just do it. Yep. So if you learn things as a kid and then you stick it and you, you do that enough, it's almost impossible to change how you do it because it's, it's an instinct to do it like that. Yep. And so I think when you have to learn a new skill, it's exciting because you have to unlearn something to learn a new way to do it. Yeah. And so that's a lot of my passion is having to, to fight through that. So we've got five races left for season 22. Yeah, five? Yep. What do you think about those? I, I, I want to finish on a high. Um, you know, start of the year and I was like, oh, look at me, I'm going to be at the front. And then it all went to shit. Right. And finally, we're, we're kind of like, hey, look, we're kind of getting back there again. So happy days. So I want to come to Phillip Island. I've tested there. I really want to do a 31. Done 32 fours um, there. I want to do a 31. Yep. Um, that's the lap time goal. And I want to be on the box. Mm. And then I want to back it up. I don't want to be, I got on the box once. All right, goodbye, Australia. I want to get on the box. And then I want to back it up. And then I'd be like, okay, I've proven that I, I, I deserve to be here. I've deserved my opportunities that I've been given. I can now go yep. and, and move on to the next thing. So that's, the goal is not that I feel like I necessarily need to. I think there's enough people that respect me in the paddock, but for my own sense of self-worth, yep. that's what I've got to achieve is I have to be able to go at the end of the year and be like, I showed that I belong here in the paddock. Goodbye. Mm. How, does it, how, how do you feel like you belong? Like when you're overseas and that, that must be a big thing to come back to here and belong. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it was odd. Um, obviously, you develop this chip on your shoulder almost of, oh, these people don't think I deserve this or that or that. And you, you, you get on Facebook, you know, you cop the keyboard rows that go, oh, you're only doing this because of money or you're only doing this because of this or that or blah, blah, blah. So you develop a chip and you come there and you're like, oh, I need to beat them. And um, yep. you develop storylines in your head, true or false, you say, this person, you know, doesn't want me here because they ran me off the track, or this person doesn't want me here because they had a go at me, or whatever. Um, so it was, it was, it's hard to fit in with the, the old school. Um, I don't get on with Wayne very well, um, not because I don't respect him or he doesn't respect me. We're just we're too far apart in age and experience levels. Yep. I have a chat with him, but I don't connect, and I don't think he connects with me. Where someone like Troy, I can connect with, um, but it's more the younger generation, like Brock Pearson. You know, I, I can I message him all the time. We're talking all the time because we, we're communicating on those apps because we grew up on those apps. Yep. Um, my best mate, um, my best man for my wedding, Ted Collins. Mm -hmm. We we have been in contact with each other even though we, we never really raced. Just we grew up doing the same thing, same yep. passion, and we got together. Now he he's, he comes and be my rider coach during the weekends. Yep. And that's where he how he gets his enjoyment, um, and I get obviously the benefit. Um, so the, the old school, it's hard to crack into that right. That shell. I've, I've made good friends with Glenn, obviously, yep. um, having raced with Glenn. And obviously, uh, Shane Kindress was my crew chief in 2017, and he was running the next-gen team. So I've been around next-gen. Yep. And that was almost my, the way that I've, I got into the paddock and became accepted in it. Yep. Yeah, belongings, yeah, it's a tough thing to do. Mm, a real tough thing to do. Like, like you look, there's always going to be a... 
a class, like it's almost like a school grade, right? Yeah. You have the class of 2022, the class of 2023. Um, at the moment, the guys at the front of the class of 08. Yeah. You know, they've been there for that long and they've developed their own rivalries. Mm. It's hard for them to see someone else coming through. The only one that's really done has been Mike Jones. Yeah. He's the only one that's been able to crack so far the established mm. core. Um, so you hear people say, oh, they're seat blockers or this or that. It's like, no one's beat them. How can yeah. you claim they're a seat blocker when no one's beat them yet? Yeah. Um, so hopefully we start beating them soon. Yeah. Um, the next generation, you know, me, uh, Max Stauffer, Daniel Fowles is probably still one of our, in the, the young generation, uh, Pearson, obviously. Yeah. I think that's the next era that's coming through. You know, he's a competitor of yours, but Max is looking very good on the bike, eh? Yeah, oh, I like Max. Yep. I, I watched him race Wakefield last year on Supersport Bike, and the way he was braking was absurd. Mm. He was braking that late. Um, I, I talk to Max a lot. Yep. I think he's doing a really good job. And I think it's tough. And people don't realise how much of a step a superbike is. Because you go from a 300 to a 600, it doesn't feel like that much of a step. Yep. And you're like, well, that's 80 horsepower. Yep. So what's going to be 80 more? Mm. But it's a lot bigger step than people realise. It took me two years to go fast on a superbike at Phillip Island than I did on a supersport bike. Wow. And now, now I've, I, was, I think I was the third fastest person there at the start of the year, yep. lap time-wise. But it takes a long time. Mm. And unfortunately in this sport... You haven't got a long time. Yep. And so a lot of the young guys, they get that one year, that one shot, and they haven't got the time or the experience, and they just crash their brains out, and then they get dropped. Yep. And they go, okay, well, we try to put a young guy on. Um, so I think the way he's doing it, you know, family team, no real pressure. Yep. He'll come back to those same tracks he thinks he's struggling at now, next year, yep. and it'll just click. For sure. One day it just clicks. You realise the slower you go on the superbike, the faster you go. Yep. When you try and carry too much speed, it just doesn't work. And, but one day it just clicks. Because for so long it feels so alien to agree, like the slower mid-corner speed I carry, the faster the lap time. But I feel like I'm going slow. Yep. Then you go, okay, well then I'll start going fast again. And then you go slow again. Mm. Until you get used to just feeling slow to go fast. And, once, and it has to feel slow. Because yep. when you first ride a superbike, nothing feels slow. No. doesn't matter how slow you actually are if everything feels crazy fast yep. and then you get to the point where you're carrying heaps of corner speed and then you go okay now I need to carry heaps of exit speed mm. and that's, I think that's the stages of learning superbike whereas you look at you know the era of Maxwell and Herfoss and the last era the other major thing that made it a closer step was there's no electronics yep. like, you know our bikes are so finely tuned we're pulling the throttle from 0 to 100% in 0.5 of a second and trust in the electronics. So you have to have the feedback and the knowledge to know what you need the electronics to do. Yep. Whereas back then, it was still right of feel. When we spoke at the test, you were talking to me about the expectation in the superbike paddock. It was point, it was point 0.5, wasn't it? For, mm. From basically 0% throttle position to 100%. Yep. And if you're not doing that, it's sort of goodbye. That's about correct? Yeah, pretty much. Well, that, that's always been my experience. Yeah. Is you, ha you, just, you have to do something you've never done before, which is trust electronics. Yep. And you haven't got long to learn how to trust it. Um, you know, we had, we had Peter, who is a guy from Alpha Flyout, uh, from Alpha Europe, Germany. And he flew out and he's like, Lachlan, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm opening a throttle. No, too slow. Faster. But I'll crash. Faster. Just there was no sympathy. And that's been the same every time I've been a superbike for a team. It's just, what are you doing? Yep. And I, I struggled because I rode for BC Kawasaki. And they were like, open the throttle faster. And I'm like, 
okay, I'm done with 19. Crash. Massive crashes. And so I lost the, the faith. Yeah. So it's taken a long time to gain the faith back in electronics. And now I was struggled to ride a superbike without electronics. Yeah, okay. Like yep. I, I went and did that BSB round. And it took me a long, it took me like the whole week and just remember that I didn't have electronics. Yeah. Because you just get, it becomes a habit. So just, do you think the BSB rider coming here, they struggle with so much electronics or what do you think? I don't think like, it's one of those things, the electronics doesn't necessarily make you faster, right? Mm. It just makes you more consistent because it's one thing you have to think about less. Yep. The BSB riders are still on the absolute limit. You watch them go through like Cops Corner at Silverstone, they're at like 40 degrees of lean angle with 20% slip. Yep. Like they're on the limit of the grip anyway. So I don't think having electronics will make them slower. But when you get used to riding electronics and you take it away, you instantly take a step down until you work it out. Yeah, yep. Like, Booksy comes over. I don't know why. In test days, he just seems awfully slow. Right. And then at the end of the day, he'll just go put on each of the tires and then go bang, and he's just as fast as the rest of us. So I don't think there's any reason why the guys over there can't come back and do this. Yep. But obviously, there's, there's still a lot more money in BSB, so why would you come back? Yeah, that's right. Who was, who was someone you idolised when you grew up? Or did you have an idol? Yeah, Some people like, don't. It, it's almost like that. Like, I didn't watch bike racing until I started racing road racing. Yeah. So I didn't actually watch any MotoGP until I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I, I went and watched a couple of MotoGPs at Phillip Island in 07, 08, but I wasn't aware of who Stoner was or... Yep. I just wasn't aware. So I didn't grow up with an Australian icon. Um, so I, I, I liked watching Marquez. I liked watching Rossi because I, I like records. Yep. Like I love watching Ray because I want to see him win again because I like watching the records grow. Um, but for me, more of my idols were the people that I spent when I was in Europe. So for me, like one of my biggest role models was Leon Camiel. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time with him when I was living in Europe and he was like, you just have to do more. And I was a kid, I'm like, what do you mean I'm doing enough? And now I understand what he meant. But he was the person that I, I aspire to be most as, a, as, a, as an athlete. Yeah. It would be him. Uh, Chaz was also another one that was really influential when I was young because um, I was living over there by myself. Mm. And so I just had these guys that had been there, done that, and I didn't take on a, as, as much as I could have. Yep. But as far as role model, it would only be them. I didn't grow up watching. Like, I wasn't a four-year-old, you know, watching. I just didn't, didn't do it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say about Leon. Uh, I had Steph Redman in here uh, earlier th- in the year and she's in Andorra as well yeah. now. And he sort of seems to be like a role model for a lot of people over there. He's helping a lot of people out as well. He's just, he's an unbelievable character and he has, he's so giving with his time. Right. Like, you know, I was, I was I'm a nobody in Europe. Like, I've been raised world championship, sure, but I haven't achieved any results that are of note to, to justify getting to spend time with the people that I spent time with. And he would invite me around for dinner every yeah. week. And he'd be like, come have dinner, you know, or come jump in the car and we'll drive to the airport together or come sit my motor home. Like he was so giving with his time. Yep. He, um, and he introduced me to all of, his, all of his other mates, you know, like I got to spend time with Johnny Ray and Tom Sykes and Eugene Laverty and, and, get, and Chaz Davies yep. through Leon because he was so giving and he was so... Just, yeah, giving is the word, but there's another word I'm trying to think of, generous. Yeah. Um, and we, like, he is an incredible person. And he's, I know now he's helping out Senna. Mm. Um, he's helping out Senna a lot. And look at Senna's results. Absolutely. The lap times he's doing is, is close to Moto2 pole lap times. Um, so there's people that are going, oh, you know, Senna's only winning because he's on the triumph. And I'm like, 
who cares? He's not the only one in the triumph. Yep. And he's doing the same time that the guys that are in the world championship are doing the triumphs. So, you know, I was one of the people that went, oh, I don't know if Senna's got this. I put my hand up and say that. Yep. Proved me wrong. He's done an unbelievable job. So and I think part of that is Leon. Mm. You know, Leon's looking after him. Leon's brother um, trains Tour de France cyclists. So he's got um, Senna on that same training program. Yep. Um, like, Leon is just so gifting. Mm. And, yeah, like Senna, at his age, like, he's, he's capped out where he's at with CEV. So without a dispensation or something, he, he might have to do another year there or whatnot, but his times are fantastic. Yeah, he, he deserves to be in the World Championship. Yeah. Like, he's earned that right, but Dorna are funny. Dorna's very funny, so I'll be curious to see what happens. You'd never think there's politics in motorsport, would you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that there's a lot of politics. Yeah. There's a lot of bullshit. Mm. Without giving it away, or you can if you want, do you know your plan for next year? I do. Yeah. I can't. I, it's not my place to say. Okay, cool. Um, but I, do, I, do, I know where I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about it. It's good. Um, something I haven't done before. Yeah. Um, it's not in Europe. Yeah. And it's not in America. Um, it's probably giving it away, but... Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, but something you can feel settled in and have a goal to basically yeah. go to. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. We've got a lot of, um, we've got an, a, a full time manager now that's looking up, looking for sponsors and stuff full time. Yeah. So hopefully that takes a bit of stress away from racing too. Yeah. Everything's yep. already kind of sorted before we get there. Um, yeah, it'd be good. Awesome, mate. Well, thanks for having me down here. It's, uh, yeah, we've we've been trying to bang this out for a little bit. For me a while coming now, to Sydney. Yeah. Um, you coming up here and everything. So it's Monday night after the Supers. You've hung around basically to help me out a bit doing this as well. So thanks heaps, mate. Truly appreciate it. And it's been a good chat. It's been something that I've learned a lot as well. And um, yeah, thanks heaps, mate. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Cheers. That's all we have time for on today's show. If you get the chance, head over to YouTube and hit subscribe on the Talk and Chatter page. Also, head over to iTunes and give us a star rating and a review there. It all helps to get the podcast out there. A big thank you goes to everyone that's been doing this already, and uh, we'll be back with another show soon.